0: to very amusing your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I'm ready to leave Colorado. As most of you know, I was only supposed to be here for a couple weeks, and it ended up being a three-month jaunt. A lot of people just assume I live here now, which is very funny because I have had altitude sickness I think every single day I've been here. I'm currently two Gatorades deep because my body still hasn't adjusted even though I am leaving imminently. Now, one of the things I am excited about, besides going home to my stuff and my office and not sitting at a folding chair working from a desk that is basically just an outdoor table from Home Depot, the main thing I am excited about is the teeny tiny road trip we're going to have on the way back now when you brand something a road trip it automatically makes it sound more fun than it is because most people would say oh it's a 14 and a half hour slog from colorado back to los angeles but no i am choosing to use the word road trip to make it sound like a joy so i have built out a google map with fast food stops along the way and these are not just regular fast food stops like yes i will be stopping for those new spicy nuggets or whatever those are and the new KFC fries that they keep advertising to me on TV. I keep seeing that ad and I'm like, yes, I will eat your crispy fries. Just let me get in the car. Anyway, I have booked out, I believe, about a half dozen regional (laughs) fast food chains that I've never been to and I plan to go to for my very first time on this trip so some of them obviously i will be stopping at a duncan and a sonic which aren't far from me in los angeles they're maybe an hour an hour and a half but they're rarities and while i'm here i want to stop at them so we got duncan first then we're gonna go to sonic i'm gonna get a diet cherry limeade and probably a diet regular limeade just to like have in the car but as we proceed we end up in this town called saint george And St. George, Utah has every regional fast food chain that I have ever wanted to eat at. I'm going to have to eat five meals in one pit stop and make it quick because we want to get home within the 14, 15 hour time range. Um, I'm trying to see. I have everything set to the map. I'm looking right now. Okay, so we got, we got, we got, we got, we got Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers, which I've been to once, but I kind of want to go back to. We got, oh, I, I pinpointed a movie theater in case I want to go in just to get popcorn and leave. I am not watching an indoor movie, never, uh, especially in the middle of a road trip, but popcorn in the car is a snack? Would be ideal, especially because I haven't had movie theater popcorn, oh my gosh, since February? Since March? I think the last thing I saw in theaters was Birds of Prey, and I don't even remember when that was because it was another lifetime. So the main place I have to stop is this place called Arctic Circle, and also another place called Iceberg. Both of these places were on on stories that one of our guests later on this episode we will talk about him. He has told me to go through his writing. He has recommended so many things, including Chukarama, Rama, which is some food buffet. There's also this place Swig, which is part of this like chain of soda stores in Utah. Basically, in Utah, uh, instead of Starbucks, they offer Swig, and this place so delicious because spelled obviously like soda because. I suppose because Mormons can't have coffee, so this is their version of Starbucks, is what's called a quote-unquote dirty soda, which is a soda with a bunch of shots in it, kind of like Dutch Bros, but instead of coffee filled with shots, it's soda filled with shots. Either way, I will be stopping there. And then... There's a few more. Hold on. Yeah, I do plan on eating this much. Iceberg Drive-In. I'll be getting ice cream. Black Bear Diner is inside, so we will not be dining there. Again, I will be eating this food in our car, away from people, because uh, there's still a pandemic, and I'm very cognizant of it. Port of Subs. That's the last place. A sandwich chain that I've never heard of that it feels like a regional subway, but I'm about to find out. I wouldn't usually be excited to sit for 14 hours straight, especially because... This podcast has caused me to sit more than I ever have before. Today, both of my legs went numb. But you know what? When there's this many treatsies on the road, you can't go wrong. Now, speaking of treats, this week's episode is all about theme park food. And I really, really tried to bring you some things you didn't know, maybe some more details about things you did know but weren't so sure of, maybe solve some mysteries. Who knows what's in store? All I know is that if you are curious how Haunted Mansion desserts are innovated, or how the menus for Shanghai Disneyland are created in a top secret location in Orlando, from themed sweets to Wizarding World treats, we're going to cover everything you love about theme park food, and plenty of things you may not have previously known. So we'll do the news, stick around, because this one is a doozy. And you know what? If it had a flavor, it would be delicious. In the news this week, we mostly have small updates out of Disney World, as well as a major one out of Universal Orlando Resort. Disney World will be reopening one of its water parks, not sure which one yet, on March 7th, 2021. There's also a ton of new Disney merch. I cannot stress this enough. It seems like every day Disney Food Blog is posting a new pair of ears, and I can't get over how many days it's been happening for. There must be a dozen new pairs out, and I I have to assume maybe they're posting from stock that would have been out when the parks would have been open in the spring. Unsure, but if you are a mini ears person get on it, especially because there are some discounts, including a AP discount of 30 percent on select merchandise. So maybe you can save a little coin. Now, all of that is great, but it does not hold a candle to the news coming out of Universal. They are officially slightly resurrecting Halloween Horror Nights. Following a successful trial run last weekend, they are going to be doing Halloween experiences the weekend of September 26th and 27th, and then daily October 3rd through November 1st. Now, anyone who is jonesing for HHN stuff will be excited to hear that they will still be doing the two houses they previewed, Universal Monsters of the Bride of Frankenstein Lives and Revenge of the Tooth Fairy. Now, if you're wondering how... Universal Orlando shared photos inside one of the houses, and you can see plexiglass between the scare actors and guests within the house. Now, they don't sacrifice any terror (laughs) by putting in this plexiglass. It still looks as frightening as it has in years past. So I commend them for finding a safer way to do it and still bring people their Halloween thrills. There's even more happening throughout the resort with trick-or-treating at Islands of Adventure and a scarecrow stalk at Universal Studios Florida, both of which are included with park admission. Now, the big news of the week that everyone's been waiting for is a Disneyland opening announcement. And at the time of this recording, we still do not have one. I will be screaming through every channel of the Internet once we know to spread the news as far and wide as fast as possible. But so far, we're still waiting to find out what's next. So with that, let's get into this week's episode talking everything theme
1: park food.
0: This week, we are talking all about theme park food, the people who make it, the people who create it, and the people who professionally get to taste it. I've had a lot of bizarre and unique experiences with Disney and Universal Food in this line of work. Sometimes that means tasting every entree at Leaky Cauldron at 10 a.m. or sitting in an empty de doo musical review theater staring at a bunch of employees as you eat fried chicken on camera. But most of all, my favorite part is finding out something new I didn't know before. I've been able to ask chefs questions firsthand, find out details for items way before they make it into a theme park, and even fact-check weird ingredients, like the buzz-button foam used at Oga's Cantina. I've written dozens of stories about new Disney food trends, or where to get breakfast at Magic Kingdom, or why Florian Fortescue's at Universal Studios Florida is the best ice cream scoop on planet Earth. But for this episode... I wanted to dive in deeper for theme park fans who may be missing their favorite indulgences and meals now more than ever. So this episode is entirely dedicated to that. We're going to talk to executives. We're going to talk to chefs. We're going to talk to executive chefs. From Halloween treats to eating like Harry Potter. Here's hopefully everything you never knew about theme park food. We'll start at Walt Disney World. Having covered the theme parks extensively, I've learned plenty of little weird things in my day about Disney food. For example, LeFou's brew is topped not with whipped cream, but with foams, a fruit-based cream product that has four calories per serving. The uniqueness of the sticky-smoked Caudu ribs, served at Docking Bay 7 within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, isn't the flavor. It's the cut, slicing them in half and then straight across to look more alien. And that fried Andorian tip-yip? It's a specially sourced hunk of all-white chicken breast meat that's naturally compressed into a cube-like shape, coated in a flour-based blend, and deep-fried like a big old chicken nugget. What's most interesting to me, as evidenced by this entire podcast, is the ability to share a story of something, anything, that theme park fans otherwise would not know. A few years ago, I did a big video series with Eater, and we were able to shoot inside the kitchens of Jungle Navigation Co. Limited Skipper Canteen and Tiffin's. It was here that I learned that Skipper Canteen's shumai dumplings are folded by hand every single day, and that the charsu pork is a three-day process, brined and set overnight for 24 hours, slow-cooked for 12, and then sliced and grilled to order. Oh, and when Tiffin's has their house-made charcuterie board, it's a platter of invention, adding Ethiopian coffee grounds to pork terrine or serving up five-day cured duck pastrami. Things like this... Aren't normal for theme park restaurants. There is some serious cooking going on at some of these places, even if their surroundings are somewhat make believe. I'm always amazed by what Disney does to go above and beyond. And one of the ways they're able to do so is with their semi secret, nondescript food lab. I'm lucky enough to have seen it firsthand. An educational space meets show kitchen, where a lot of newer items, menus, and even entire restaurants are designed. It's also a place to test new cocktails, try wines, give big-time executives their first taste of a new land's menu, or even, possibly, have the hardest job interview of all time. Apparently, new hires are sometimes given a chopped-style challenge during their interview to seal the deal, where chefs are given a skill-validation test with a box of proteins, a mystery basket— or whatever's left in the fridge to create a four-course menu that they'll have two hours to cook. But whereas I was simply bewildered by the desserts and Food Network challenges that go down there, David Lancel, senior editor at Food & Wine, dove in even deeper. Now, I write about food the same way Homer Simpson is a donut expert. I'm just an enthusiast, and I love it. But Dave... He's the real deal. His work is prolific, and that's not an exaggeration. He spends most of his time driving across the country, researching some of the many, many stories he puts out, like the best classic restaurant or fast food or coffee in every state, because he goes to every single state. Like a one-man roadshow, when Dave says something is good, it's not because he ate a sandwich there and loved it. It's because he's eaten every sandwich everywhere and can actually give that seal of approval. His Food Lab story touched on how global theme park cuisine comes out of this shared space and the amount of time and work that's spent on some of these projects. You know Ale and Compass at Disney's Yacht Club? According to him, it took three years to develop that place. And parts of the menu at Deluxe Burger at Disney Springs took two. David also emphasized how newer locations like Amaret's Patisserie and the Ganacherie, both spearheaded by pastry chef Stefan Reimer, simply don't need to be as absolutely excellent as they are. We'd all be fine with Mickey ice cream bars, but we are lucky to have options like those. Having covered Disney for over 20 years, he now counts Flying Fish, California Grill, everything at Epcot's Morocco Pavilion, and Wine Bar George among his favorites. But he and I hopped on the phone to discuss why the people inside that secret kitchen are almost more remarkable than the space itself. (laughs) I am so happy that you are here to talk about Food Lab.
2: Hello, hello, hello.
0: So a lot of people don't know about the Food Lab. What was it like just being in this usually walled off to even employees' space.
2: Getting there was actually kind of funny because it's right in the middle of everything, but it's also very well hidden. And I think in the piece I mentioned that all the rigmarole that we had to go through to get back onto that specific lot, which is behind one of the resorts that I probably shouldn't mention. It's in this blank kind of defunct strip mall looking space. If I remember correctly, you can't even see in the doors. They have them blacked out. All that matters is what goes on inside. And, and, and if you don't need to know where the door is, then don't worry about it, is sort of the impression I got. The, the men who and women who worked in there were just so cool. You got the sense that everyone in there was having a really good time. Within five minutes of arriving, I was chatting with a very accomplished winemaker from Oregon who was in there doing a tasting for the whole crew. And I said, is this normal? They're like, oh yeah, there's always somebody in here. You felt like they were really being let off the leash to do their thing, to work their magic. And uh, it was some of the most fun I've ever had reporting on the parks over the years. It's definitely, um, it's a modest space, but I think what impressed me the most, the amount of thought that goes into the most basic aspects of the food and beverage. Like for example, I think he said something like two years they spent on the french fries alone at the burger place. Two years.
0: I only really report on theme parks. So that seems like a long time to me. But for someone who is french fry king, how absurd is that from your point of view?
2: That's obsessive. Are they serious (laughs) chefs? The answer is 100% yes. I mean, they're so dedicated and so committed and I was a serious, hardcore group of adults doing serious work. Yes, and and it was like really fun to be in there because you were like, "Wow, I'm I'm I am like in the presence of excellence." So they weren't just they weren't just like boring corporate chefs. They were very, very like opinionated and like big personalities. There are a lot of passionate people behind the scenes that you'll never meet. And you might just look at a salad or whatever at a quick service and be like, oh, but they're like, there's a lot that went into that.
0: So a few things that I was really impressed by in reading your story and having visited the Flavor Lab is that they are making dishes with other parks in other countries, that they're kind of like doing tutorials with Shanghai in the middle of this Orlando kitchen. Is that as revolutionary as it sounds? Is that abnormal for a company to be doing that?
2: I don't think it's abnormal, but I do think it might surprise people to learn that there's a significant amount of steering that seems to happen out of that blank little space in Orlando. What you eat at Disneyland Shanghai, it actually might very well have started in Orlando. Wine Bar George, that was another project that I freaking love between that and the ganache and and the patisserie like those are my happy places now and i mean if you want three examples of like how far they've come in terms of quality like those are three excellent venues it's not like you have to go searching for the good food anymore especially at dinner time
0: Disney World Resort is like a city, so it's no surprise its culinary setup is similarly robust. With around 500 food service locations, hundreds of beers, and thousands of wines for sale, even their drink program is major. In the parks, beer sells better than wine, likely due to the weather, but at sit-down restaurants, wine is the winner. As you might already know, Jiko, the cooking place inside Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, has the largest collection of South African wines outside the actual territory. And resort-wide... Chardonnay is the number one bestseller. Cabernet comes in second. Well, Disney World puts a huge emphasis on wine education with their staff, and I mean huge. There's this dude, Brian Cozil who I've spoke to probably more than some of my relatives, and he's a master sommelier at Disney, one of less than 300 worldwide. George Miliotis of Wine Bar George is another, giving Disney more master somms than some cities. The company and even George himself really make an effort to pass along that training to their respective staffs, either through Disney or through the restaurant, to keep everyone at all levels at the top of their game. If you've ever wondered how Disney creates a restaurant from scratch, it all starts with a story. Once that's set, a blue sky menu is created and then comes the kitchen's design. They decide food before equipment so they can outfit it with exactly what they'll need. There are many rounds of brainstorming, and dishes continually change, some being retooled into final versions, others not making it in at all. And then operations offers feedback, and the team ensures the menu is balanced for all kinds of diners, including vegan, vegetarian, allergy, gluten intolerant, and even those who just prefer to eat healthy. Once that's locked and loaded, they're good to proceed to the final menu, spending anywhere from 18 months to two years total working on a single restaurant concept. But what about limited-time offerings? Seasonal specialties. It's no secret that Walt Disney World's Halloween food game is off the charts, especially this year. There's the stunning poison candied apple at Hollywood Studios, specialties at Amorettes, and even hits at Disney hotels like a beautiful pumpkin mousse at Disney's Riviera Resort that looks like the real thing, and an autumnal apple pie cupcake at Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. But at the Magic Kingdom... They're turning out spooky staples all day long, like a poison apple cupcake and Constance's for better or for worse wedding cake, a raspberry Bavarian cream stuffed citrus cake topped with whipped cream flowers and, as an homage to the Haunted Mansion, a chocolate axe. It's quite possibly the runaway hit of the season for the second year in a row. Chef Robert Gilbert has worked at Walt Disney Parks and Resorts since 1992 and for nearly 30 years has had a hand in creating the dishes we know and love. Everything you've texted to your friends or drooled about in the past month It's because of his talented staff and, ultimately, his guidance of them. As the Culinary Director of the Magic Kingdom, which also happens to be his dream job, Chef Robert was way too modest to accept me calling him the Culinary Wizard of Oz. But he did take a break from inventing things we'll be eating in the future to discuss why Peter Pan's float is back on the menu, how one Halloween treat was invented on a farm, and why hiring may be the real reason your favorite Magic Kingdom dessert exists. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you.
4: Absolutely. I'm super excited to be here as well. Thank you for for having me. I really
1: appreciate it.
0: Well, I'd love to talk to you about some of the newer foods that are at the park, especially because I've been covering Disney World for probably five or six years now, and it feels like the rollout of seasonal snacks this Halloween season is above and beyond, both aesthetically and from what I'm hearing flavor-wise. What is your creative process for inventing items like these? And where do you draw inspiration from?
4: Wow, that's a great question. So uh, for us, we we have a core group of cast members that we meet informally on a weekly basis. We go into our war, war room together and we blue sky. The ideas could be built off of a new movie or some new merchandise that's coming out or the seasons that are right around the corner. And we, we work off of that. We work off of each other. We just get the creative juices phone and, you know, we, we laugh and, and we talk. We have a good time and, and we, you know, we create and we just, it's a fantastic experience to work with the people that I do. Um, I just consider myself very, very fortunate. Once we have the idea in our minds, you know, we go through a formal synergy process that we have in the company to make sure that, that we're doing everything with our intellectual property that we're supposed to. And then once we've gotten the right approvals to actually use the items that we want to in the manner that we want to create them in, that's really when the fun begins, because that's when we get into the kitchens and the bakeries and we actually start creating the the items and, and bring them to life. And you know, sometimes this takes days, months, but at the end of the process, you've climbed this huge mountain together and we've finally got Constance's wedding cake, you know, to be part of our portfolio. And it's like Oh my gosh, we just did this together, you know, but it's just a great experience for us. For me personally, I get a lot of my inspiration from my kids, you know, are very involved with with what I do. Being a, a chef, a professional chef for Disney, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. So
0: as you said, we have to discuss Constance's wedding cake. It is so beautiful. I I was blown away when I first saw a photo of it. How, I mean, how do you develop items like this that are based on not just an attraction, but one with a cult following and to kind of capture the essence of it within a food item?
4: So um, a few years ago, gosh, about two and a half years ago, the Magic Kingdom did not have a pastry chef. We had a pastry sous chef, but we did not have a pastry chef. So it was my goal to go find a, a pastry chef. And fortunately for, for us, we found a French pastry chef, which is super talented. Alex Vacher is one of the most talented chefs I've ever been around. And unfortunately now I get to work with him. In fact, when we were on our first interview with him over the phone, um, he was with another organization at the time. And um, he said, you know, people around here expect me to be a magician and, you know, just to pull stuff out of the air and make it happen. And I said, oh, chef, if you get the opportunity to work together, I'm going to make you a wizard, not a magician anymore. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we're walking around the park where, you know, we're in, we're in street clothes. And we're like, you know, let's go, let's go hop on some attractions and get some inspiration. And next thing you know, we're, we're on the Haunted Mansion. And, and there we come around the corner on, on the ride. And it's like, we're, we're going to do that. We're absolutely going to do that. And, um, and now it's, it's a huge hit for, for all of our guests.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you on everyone's behalf for making sure that the park had a pastry chef.
4: (laughs) He's amazing.
0: I noticed there were some brand new flavors this year, like cream cheese soft serve. So for something like that, or if there's any other items similar, do you tend to come across these during the year and kind of bookmark them for the Halloween season? Or how does your team track trends and keep track of new flavors?
4: Ah, uh, uh, yes. The poor, unfortunate souls float with the cream cheese soft serve, the black raspberry syrup, and, and the Coca-Cola is, is one of our favorites for sure. So this item actually came from the Disney Villains After Hours event that, that we hosted. Um, in a playing session, one person that happened to be there with us just went black raspberry picking, and they told us that they had such a great time. And we're like, okay, chef, so what are you going to do with all these black raspberries that you've picked now? And they're like, well, I'm going to make a cheesecake. That is awesome. So, thus, the Poor Unfortunate Souls Float was created in a farmer's field here in Central Florida. And um, I got to tell you, the black raspberry it's, it's amazing. Um, and it's actually called the Mysore down here in, uh, in Central Florida. So, it actually makes perfect sense that the Mysore raspberry goes with the Poor Unfortunate Souls Float. And we've got, we've got a million examples of that. Um, like I say, inspiration for us comes from, from everything, and from every walk of life that we have. Um, we do tag on to things. And, you know, we have, like I mentioned, right outside my office, there's a war room. It's got a huge map of the Magic Kingdom and all of our 36 kitchens on it. And, you know, we're, we're very thoughtful on where we put things and what we create. We want to make sure that our portfolio is balanced across across the park to make sure that one land doesn't have too many items and another one doesn't. Um, the colors that go with the schemes and, you know, the story. You know, our company was built on, on storytelling. And authentic stories. And we want to make sure that, that we're continuing on with that tradition that Walt started you know, so many years ago for us.
0: And when you say you're cognizant of where you put things in the park, is that balancing like sweet and savory flavors or making sure that it makes sense within the land? Or is it something even bigger than that?
4: It's a little bit of everything. We went through an ice cream cones craze here for a little while. And uh, in fact, we just brought back Peter Pan's float when we came back. And those types of items, we wanted to make sure that there was enough Synergy type or intellectual property type ice cream cones across. So we were very thoughtful on where we put those and when we launched them. And then when we, you know, we, we pulled them back. Um, So the process, once again, we start in our war room and we have a checklist of, of think, all these boxes that we want to check. Can we check them all? No, absolutely not. But we do try to check the majority of them and try to be good stewards for the company to ensure that we're, we're putting our best representation out there.
0: Beyond Halloween, because, you know, you've risen to this dream job. Is there anything else that through your tenure you've brought to Magic Kingdom that you're so excited about?
4: The best thing for me, the, the, the thing I'm most proud of is every one of my, my direct reports. Um, I've helped them through their careers. Every one of them, my two executive chefs, the pastry chef are brought to the company, all of the chefs, the chef de cuisine, I have assisted in their career somehow. They've done the heavy lifting, of course. But seeing people around me rise up and, and live their dreams, that's what's most important to me. And that's what I get the most gratification from just being here.
0: Does that also come down to the food? Like, do those people ever think of an item or something they want to be making for the parks? And you're like, let's just try it and see what happens.
4: Everything. Every day we, we, we do this. In fact, um, Be Our Guest is now uh, recreated their pork dish that we just had a taste them for. It'll be starting next week. You know, we we, we play with food every day. Um, you know, be our guest is, is one of the coolest restaurants in the world, not just, you know, here at Walt Disney world. And I was here when we brought breakfast to it. Um, I was here when, when we brought, you know, the pre fee all day to it. Um, and all those menu items, um, have either tweaked or they're brand new and they've changed jungle skipper canteen limited navigational company. Um, I was a part of that process from the very beginning um, every day we play with food, and, and, I, and I touch it in one way or another with, with my team. Um, and that's the great part about being here. You know, there's, there's 36 kitchens here, and uh, it's, it's every day. It, it's never two days in a row that, that are exactly the same. It's, it's definitely an adventure here.
0: I mean, on a personal note, I feel I have to personally thank you for the whole fried fish at Skipper Canteen, which I order every time because I'm like, there's no way this is still going to be on the menu when I come back. And for years, it still is. And it's thrilling to me.
4: Yeah. You know, an interesting story behind that um, item is when we first opened, we opened with a fish collar, which is the, the neck of, of the fish. And um, they, they were popular, but they weren't as popular as we knew a whole fish would, would be. And so we switched it, and you know, sales you know tripled overnight just by going to the to a whole fish instead of just a part of the fish. And the fish collar is great; it really is. It's it's a very meaty piece of the fish. But the whole fish, the presentation itself, when we had the lionfish on the menu, that was just amazing. You know, the server would parade it across the dining room, and guests would buy it just off the scene because they be like, "Wow, what is that?" And next thing you know, they're they're buying the lionfish.
0: I know it really is it's such proof of like the risk that you guys are willing to take because I've, I've eaten a head on whole fish steps from Cinderella castle. And I still can't believe that it's there. Like it just doesn't make sense. And I love it so
4: much. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had some huge home runs, you know, like the Peter Pan float as an example, we're, we're out in the war room one day and we're like, why don't we just take the dull lime, you know, and stick a red chocolate feather in and call the Peter Pan float. And we're like, Okay, let's try it and see what happens. Next thing you know, guests are making T-shirts out of it and making phone cases out of it. We're like, holy smokes, we never saw that coming. But then, you know, we have some other items that weren't as successful, but the Peter Pan float was um, definitely took us all uh, by surprise.
0: Yeah, you guys killed it with that. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're able to answer this, but is there anything new for Christmas time that you can discuss?
4: well you know i promise you i promise you this we'll have more than enough peppermint more than enough chocolate powdered sugar and holiday sprinkles for everyone that i can promise you
0: yes you're truly a culinary santa now (laughs) like we got sprinkles we got sugar we got everything for young girls and boys
4: (laughs) we'll throw in some marshmallow fluff for you as well
0: oh then i am in I had so much fun talking to Robert that halfway through I got distracted by his office decor because I saw what I thought was a fancy hoity-toity glass orb of Madame Leota from Haunted Mansion, but no, it was just this seasonal sipper sold in the parks this year. The food merchandise this season is so good that even through a Zoom video on the other side of the country, I was wowed by it. And that, I gotta say, is pretty commendable. Who's uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with Framebridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. To get started, head to framebridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's framebridge.com. At Universal Orlando Resort, they take food and drink very seriously. Between Krusty Burger and Moe's Tavern at Simpsons Land and Seuss Island's whimsical eats, they're pros at bringing the flavors and dishes from familiar TV shows, movies, and books to life within their parks. After all, take one look at Wizarding World of Harry Potter's culinary lineup, and it's clear they excel at themed dining. Now, if you're like me, a day at these parks is not complete without going to the Leaky Cauldron, Three Broomsticks, Florian Fortes ice cream parlor, or embarrassingly, all three, which is why it's fascinating to me that these iconic Harry Potter-inspired theme park foods weren't always there. There was life before Butterbeer and life after Butterbeer, and right in the middle is Rick Florell, Executive Vice President of Revenue Operations at Universal Orlando Resort. Rick indulged me by letting me ask all my little questions about how invented-from-scratch flavors and British pub food became our go to theme park meals of choice. I always thought that guests would have been, I don't know, somewhat apprehensive of some of the more unfamiliar items on the restaurant menus, but he told me otherwise, explaining that everyone is so happy to be in these spaces, inside Three Broomsticks, inside Leaky Cauldron, that they're just endlessly excited and totally game to try something new. I mean, let's not forget this menu has not changed in years. It's remained immensely authentic and real to the Harry Potter books and films. They've even got a full English breakfast on the menu. With blood sausage! Blood sausage! In a Florida theme park! Who would have thought? So, speaking with someone who helped create this famed array of treats and sweets that many of us had waited a lifetime to eat was a delight on par with Butterbeer Soft Serve. And speaking of, remember, until they created Butterbeer, you couldn't get it there was nowhere to go. It didn't even exist. After their partnership with Warner Brothers and a process of approvals and recipe tinkering, this is the real deal sold in the parks straight from the books. Here's Rick telling me how it all began and even a few little tidbits about some of my favorite things to eat at Wizarding World. I know it's been a few years <laughs> since Wizarding World of Harry Potter has opened, but I'm so curious about how everything there came together. You're not just creating a menu, you're creating flavors we've read about and seen for years, but never actually tried. So what was the process like for building the culinary offerings within those two lands?
3: Everything that we, that we do, we create and we pull together and we present is all based around what we call authenticity to the fiction. And the only way that you get that is to really understand what the fiction is. And uh, I had a set of books that I personally had for, and I still do, they're all dog-eared and yellow-paged and tabbed that uh, but that acknowledged any place that might have had a food piece or a potion piece or a, uh, a, a drink piece uh, to give us an idea of what was real in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and as we selected these items to take a look at and start working with that's that's what drove us there was always an entire set of the books whenever we had our meetings and uh, then as the movies came out we kind of expanded to some of those things and gave us the elbow room to maybe choose a, a couple of different items that might not have been in the book but are still authentic to the fiction And our desire was to basically say that anything and everything that's throughout the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you'll be able to find in the books or some way shown in the movies.
5: And
0: what unique difficulties did that present? Because I have to imagine some of these flavors are easily brought to life, but others must be much more complicated.
3: Yes, they are. Uh, I might as well jump to the big one, which was Butterbeer, that there is no description. In the books, no description (laughs) in the movies, no description anywhere. And we're taking a look at every at, a, at an item that piqued everybody's interest every time they read it. So as we went through and gave our own spin of what it was, we thought of all the times that it would come up that someone would have a butterbeer or where it would be. And it was always around good feelings and good times and celebrations, whether it was the dinner after the Triwizard Tournament or if it was just Harry and Ron and, and, and Hermione sitting down in uh, the uh, Leaky Cauldron and, and at the end of the day and, and kind of enjoying, it was always a fun thing for them to have. So then it was, all right, well, we call it butter beer, but it needs to be an item that anybody can have. Everybody in the family, when they come to visit Universal and they come to visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, everybody needs to be able to have one. And, of course, that meant then that it wasn't going to be alcoholic. However, it still has the word beer in it. So we said, "Well, it needs to at least look like a beer so let's let's use that as one of our points that we start with. So it has an amber bottom, white frothy top, and it should be fun to drink, and it should be you know reminiscent of shortbread and butterscotch and that's how we started and Then we started pulling together some of those flavor profiles. actually, the first one was done in my kitchen back in two thousand and seven where we poured some things together to see, well, how does it look? Oh, well, it looks like kind of where we want to go. Then we brought in our culinary team to say, all right, right, let's." how do we refine this? How do we, how do we pour this? How do we do this? And then we brought in our operating team and say, you know, you need to think about being able to make a whole heck of a lot of these. So it's not just a matter of one or two showing up. It would be a matter of, of, of a lot of presentation. So it literally took us a couple of years to get all the way through with the, te- with the flavor profile that we wanted. There'd be a butterbeer, there'd be a frozen butterbeer. And what would be the difference between the two if there was going to be any difference between the two? Uh, and how would we serve it? And how do we, you know, how do we present it in some way other than just a drink? So you've been here before, so you know. I'm sure you've been over to the butterbeer wagon, and you see it's not a simple, it's not just a simple putting a glass underneath a spigot. It's poured for you. And it's made for you. And it's made for you in front of you. Um, so um, it's, it's a it's a piece that's made at the moment. It's a piece that's made while you're in the magic of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter that you just can't get this particular experience. And you definitely can't get this particular drink anywhere else on the face of the earth.
0: And I have to ask, when you say that you tested this out in your kitchen, do you mean your personal kitchen? Yeah. Yep. I I feel like your home should be a historical monument because it's like where the butter beer was created.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was a very rudimentary attempt that we started, but it was uh, it was close enough to uh, to the the overall general thought of what we thought it would be. But the real key is when we came back and got with our culinary team and say, okay, here here we are. What how do we how do we make this happen now? Get the experts. Get our our culinary team that does everything from you know menu development to beverage development um, uh, to take it on. And we all partner because that's all part of our division here. We all partner together figuring out how to make it. And it's just not Butterbeer. Butterbeer is it's a it's a it's an iconic thing, and you can talk about it. But all of the stuff that we do throughout the lands, both of them, whether it's Diagon Alley or whether it's Hogsmeade. I know we're food and beverage, but we're very, very much into what does the whole experience look like when you go over to Diagon Alley, you know, and you go back to the first book where Hagrid has taken, uh, is taking Harry over to uh, the Leaky Cauldron. They describe the uh, Leaky Cauldron as a dingy little London bar. And when he came in, the style of service was uh, those of us that had spent a bunch of time over there just researching Uh, When you go into a traditional pub, a traditional bar, uh, if you see some seats that are open and you go over and you sit down, nobody will come over and talk to you. Uh, They won't serve you. They won't really acknowledge you unless you've been, even though you may see servers walking back and forth with food and whatever, because the proper way of doing it is you go up to the bar you order your drinks and then you order your food and then your drinks are given to you and then you go find your seat and then your food will come out later. Kind of simple. If you go into uh, Lakey Cauldron today, that's exactly how we have it set up. You go over to, you know, what, what we designed as the bar. You order your drinks, you order your, you order your food. Um, You take your drinks to a table, you're seated at a table, and you also have a little candlestick that goes with you that sits on their table uh, that tells us where you are when your food is ready so we can bring it out. So a combination of absolute authenticity to the book and also authenticity to the British pub.
0: Wow, because I knew that authenticity was such a big part of these locations, but I didn't know it was all the way down to the way you order. And how did you develop the menus for somewhere like Leaky Cauldron and Three Broomsticks? Because this isn't your typical theme park fair.
3: Well, again, back to, you know, authenticity to the fiction. Uh, if, um, uh, you know, if I could show you the book that I've got, I've got the, the third book and the reason that I'm with me. Uh, the reason that I just I brought it as a third book is also the first time that is mentioned. And that's another thing a lot of people don't really realize. They think it's all throughout the books. Well, it doesn't really show up uh, at all until you get into the third book. Uh, and we just started taking a look at anything that was a food product. Every one of the items that we've got, we can show you where it is in the book and how we pulled it together. And there's a ton of items in here. Uh, and, and one of them uh, that caught our eye early on was uh, the idea of the feast and we have uh we have a presentation on our menu it's called the great feast and the reason that we wanted to do that is as we went through the book and we went through all the books they always had a feast when there was a big occasion christmas break summer break welcome back halloween was always those things that with the word feast behind it and we thought we would pull together um, a, a plate and a presentation that we call the Great Feast, which is one of our one of our top items. We bring out this huge plate, whether you have four people, six people, eight people or whatever, and serve it at the table as a great feast and you can just have at it.
0: So I I have asked this before and no one will ever tell me and I just have to Try my best. I know that no one will ever divulge it to me, but I am eternally desperate to know more about Florian Fortescue's ice cream, who makes it, how these flavors were conceived, anything. It's my favorite ice cream in the world. Is there anything you can tell me about it that I may not know?
3: Well, you already know it tastes really, really good. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) And we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun choosing the different flavors. Uh, which was you know we, we came up with some things that we actually we actually created out of our, our head, uh, you know for example, so well how about lavender? Have you ever seen a lavender ice cream before? Um, and we had we had some fun with that because that's one extreme. The other one that we had a lot of fun was chocolate chili. and um, we got a lot of stories early on about chocolate chili. Have you had it by the way? Carl?
0: I've had every
5: flavor. <laughs>
3: Okay, good. Yeah. So that you know that that after you have taken a bite, it takes about four seconds for the hot chili to kick in. And it really is a lot of fun watching everybody's reaction when it finally, when they say, well, this is kind of a smooth, nice chocolate dish that I've got. This is okay. And then all of a sudden their eyes get as big as billiard balls and they realize that they've just got into the essence of what this ice cream was. So so a little bit of unusualness, um, you know, from a name standpoint, um, uh, and and you know that's how we that we only had a limited number of uh, of uh, little bins that we could put in there, so we had to be pretty persnickety about what we what we put in. We thought we would have fun. It's
0: to get two cones while i'm there i'm not i'm not gonna lie to you (laughs) like (laughs) it's it's a challenge to eat them in the weather but i do my best
3: yeah well then of course the the the, the crown jewel all of it is is the uh the uh, the butterbeer ice cream that we were able to, to to create not losing any of the of the essence of what it is and the flavor and the and the texture um and florian fortescue's is a very very busy little ice cream shop
0: yeah, how hard of a challenge is that? Because I don't think people realize that this butterbeer flavor, you not only invented it, but have been able to make a full line of different types of foods based on this proprietary flavor. Is it really hard to translate it to everything from like a hot beverage to fudge to ice cream?
3: Well, it's not, it's not necessarily easy. However, the base or my rule or our rule is you can't call something a butterbeer this or that unless it has butterbeer in it. So you have to start with that premise of, okay, it's got butterbeer in it. Now we want it to be ice cream or we want it to be fudge or we want it to be brownies or we want it to be, you know, any of those other things. Uh, and we got we really have a a, a terrific culinary group that uh, not only operates day in, day out some pretty some pretty cool places around the entire property, are are quite creative and very, very adept at being able to create something and be part of this whole process.
0: I do have to ask, we talked about your fish and chips for a moment. They are exceptional. What is your secret? Uh, what kind of fish is it? How is it prepared? Is there some magic spell that's on it? Why is it so good?
3: Well, number one, it's fresh. It's sustainable cod. get the, up for the Bering Sea. They get it out one day, and a day and a half later, it's here. We wish we could get the frequent flyer miles that our <laughs> cod get as we fly them into here. And then Coach Chef Steve and his team have a proprietary batter that we use that uh, can't share with you. Uh, but freshness is 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 the key. We don't bring in anything frozen. We don't bring in anything with extenders or preservatives. You know, 80 percent of everything, uh, you know, we we have actually on this entire resort property is it's fresh. It's made from it's made from scratch. Uh, We freeze very, very little uh, because freshness is extremely important. And we have a tremendous culinary team that knows the exacting way to pull it together, the exacting way to batter it, the exacting way to to, to fry it. Uh, But freshness is the real key.
0: Wow. 80 percent is pretty staggering, I have to assume.
3: It's a lot of stuff. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes it is now this podcast is clearly all about telling theme park fans stories and details they've never heard before so just to wrap up is there any wizarding world food development secrets you can divulge to us that we haven't talked about yet
3: well certainly none of the ones that we can talk about
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know everything is so secret and it's so funny because it it plays into the story of it we're like Like everything is magical it just works but oh I just want to know more about everything (laughs) (laughs) I guess is there anything that you can tell me about one of my personal favorites the cauldron cake there's a new newer version of it which I have a bit of a problem with because I usually eat it alone in my hotel room after the park but do you have any anything you can share about why that is also so good why is everything so good
3: (laughs) I've got my chef Steve Jason By the way Pop your head in here Real quick Steve And say hi to Carly Hello
0: Tell me your secrets
4: uh, we use very, very top-notch ingredients, and and so we get a good finished product, and it's not something that, like, comes out of a box like a, like, like you might see at a, a grocery store, and you, and you just mix it with two eggs and some water, and you bake it. No, it's a, not like that at all. And, you know, good Belgian chocolate and things like that to create a, a good cake, and uh, of course, the cauldron cake's, you know, designed to look a little bit like cauldron, so it's got some kind of a neat look to it, so it becomes a little whimsical, which was... What we were trying to capture there, and that's what we've done. And I think that's it. You know, I mean I think it's a wonderful cake. I think we got a lot of other wonderful desserts that we're also doing at the Wizarding World. So yeah.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm a big fan of obviously everything everyone there does. (laughs) Isn't it all so fascinating? Who knew that butterbeer was first invented in this guy's house? Or that pubs also operate like quick-service restaurants? I had no clue that something is butterbeer-flavored because it has actual butterbeer in it. So this interview blew my mind. There's so much good food beyond just the shepherd's pie and roast chicken and mystical ice cream scoops served in Diagon Alley. Real Universal fans know there's some solid dining throughout the parks. And no, not just because Mythos has had that banner proclaiming it as the best theme park restaurant for my entire lifetime. Even if their salmon is extremely good. Universal does have some cult favorite iconic foods outside of Wizarding World, but none has the internet heat on it, like pizza fries. The if it's so easy, then why didn't you think of it mashup of crinkle cut fries, tomato sauce, cheese, and pizza meats baked like a pie debuted in 2017, and has developed a cult following ever since. Originally dreamt up for Halloween Horror Nights, it's just proof that they go all out for the holiday season, providing new twists on classics and making gore and guts somehow delectable. Curious about how these inventive foods make their way into the theme park snack lexicon, I spoke with Chef Robert Martinez Jr., executive sous-chef of research and development in Universal Orlando Resort, about past favorites, tribute store treats, and how they even go about developing themed items for the spooky fall season. With Halloween Horror Nights 2020 being canceled, Universal Studios Florida has still found a way to honor the spirit and flavors of Halloween. First, there were specialty-themed treats added to the very cool HHN Tribute Store. And then, last week, two themed houses reopened, along with food trucks serving items like Electro-Fried Skin and Guts, which are, essentially, just pork rind nachos with ground beef and scallions. But there's even a new twist (laughs) on the Twisted Tater, a fan favorite that now comes with a hot dog right in the middle called Twisted Frank and Coils. Oh, and don't be afraid to add blood and guts to it. It's just roasted red pepper cheese sauce and homemade chili. Okay, okay, enough of me drooling about the yummies. Here's Chef Robert giving me the lowdown on all things tasty and spooky. What is the creative process like for inventing seasonal items, and where do you draw your inspiration from?
6: At Universal Orlando Resort, we have a amazing culinary group. Um, You know, they some people have been here thirty years, some have just gotten here recently, and I have the pleasure to tap into all of their creations as well what's in their mind i could literally just walk through our comments every kitchen on any given day and have conversations with our pastry chef and uh you know he might have an idea and i might have a flavor profile and he might have a flavor profile and i might have an idea and next thing you know we have this amazing thing that's coming out into our parks within a few a few days um but you know we also take in consideration um the value and what social media has been doing with food and beverage in particular in the years. So we, you know, we, we definitely keep an ear out to what's happening out in the industry, whether it's a new trend, whether it's, um, you know, a new cooking technique, you know, we, we don't consider ourselves Dean uh, Park food. We consider ourselves just good old food and we would, you know, we would be you know the same as if we were a standalone restaurant out on the outside um so but you know obviously flavor and creativity and um that wow instagram moment are things that take priority when it comes to creating something for our theme parks
0: and you mentioned that sometimes you'll collaborate on a dish in a matter of days do things often move that quickly there
6: on normal years no um 2020 has made us really step our game up and move a little quicker but you know normally we 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 take we take months we you know we 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 do uh, our due diligence on what it is that we're going to put out into our parks make sure it hits our demographic make sure our guests will relate to what it is that we're going to put out um we go through a, a intense tasting process with our senior leaders Um, And and we get their input as well to to just make sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page and excited about what it is that we want to put out for our guests here at Universal Orlando Resort.
0: One of my favorite items this year has been the striped pretzel footlong dog, which is a pretty brilliant take on Beetlejuice's sandworm. What is your process like for inventing foods that have ties to certain characters or films or storylines?
6: With the pretzel dog, we're making these things every morning in our production kitchen. It's uh house made pretzel dough that we're laminating um It's funny you picked up on the look of it. however, we were really inspired with uh with the tribute store itself that's in front of universal um uh at, i think it's uh one of those wow. Uh, things when you walk up to the case and you see it uh, it's definitely one of those items that you could grab and go and eat as you're as you're going Um, we wanted to make it as friendly as possible for our guests considering the fact that they're wearing masks nowadays Um, so yeah we took all those kind of things in consideration
0: oh wow so even even mask wearing went into the ideation of the menus
6: yeah yeah we're definitely packaging our food um, in a safe in a safe way for our guests um, you know, safety and sanitation has always been a priority here at Universal Orlando way before um, 2020, um, but even more so now. So we want to make sure that our guests, when they receive our food, um, you know, feel comfortable, feel comfortable that we're uh, we're taking their safety in consideration. So, yeah, we, we a lot of the food that you're getting in a tribute store or, or around our parks nowadays, you're getting it in a in a safe manner, in a prepackaged manner, prepackaged cutlery. Um, just to make sure that our guests really, really feel comfortable in our resort.
0: So tell me more about the Tribute Store Foods. I need to know what the story is with those beating heart, sour cherry gummies. <laughs> how did those happen and how does it do that?
6: So the Tribute Store itself is, is is actually just the coolest partnership ever. I mean, you have our creative merchandise team. You have our merchandise team. You have food and beverage. And you have our advanced technology research and development guys that work for creative. This is the perfect synergy. Um, so we've all come together. They were gracious enough to give us a space in, in, in the store so that we could feature some items in the store. Um, the, the the machine itself that the beating hearts are actually alive on was created by our advanced technology team. And they did an amazing job bringing our food to life, literally. Um, so we created the flavor profile of these gummies that are, you know, Sour Cherry and flavor, and um, they're actually beating as the guests walk up to it. So it's definitely playing with all the senses of our guests.
0: I have to ask and I don't know if I'm allowed to, but how does it how does it work? <laughs> it looks so real. How are they beating?
6: Well, um, you know, it's it's obviously an illusion, right? Yeah. But the gummy bears themselves are sitting on a board and the board has little holes that are sucking the air from the gummies. The gummies are a little bit hollow, so it allows them to get pumped. A little bit, but the, the the mechanism all inside of it is just remarkable. And the creativity from our uh, advanced technology knowledge team, they just really brought this whole thing to life.
0: How long does something like that take to create from start to finish?
6: Well, this, th- this actually was a project that we've been working on for years, to be honest with you. And um, this tribute store was just the perfect, perfect time to roll it out for our guests, just to keep them engaged and excited with What is uh, Halloween Horror Nights?
0: Cool. In terms of other Halloween food, just generally speaking throughout the resort, how do you balance the gore and kind of the essence of Halloween Horror Nights while still making the food delicious and appealing?
6: We like to start with just raw food. We don't like to start with trying to make it super gory or the theming of the goriness we want to make sure that the food, first and foremost, tastes delicious. So it has to be real food. We don't like processed uh, processed foods. We don't like to try to add way too much food coloring into stuff. We like to try to keep it natural. We like to try to keep it fresh, and we like to try to keep it cool. Um, after we you know, come up with a great flavor profile, then, then we go into how to make this feel like something that could just be Instagrammable or something that could just be totally totally different than anything we've seen before
0: i think i have to ask you now about pizza fries i mean this is one of the most iconic foods that i've seen coming out of universal orlando resort what is the origin story for pizza fries and were you surprised by the reception to it
6: to be honest with you no i I wasn't surprised i mean you have pizza and you have french fries and then you put them together and you know how can how can it have went wrong you know is (laughs) is kind of like the question is the real question so no we we really love pizza fries and i guess that's kind of the reason why you could see them Um, every year at Halloween Horror Nights, um, we just like to put our fun new twist on flavor profiles of them, play with different pizza concepts themselves. They're just super popular and they're just super tasty. You know, Uh, it's just definitely one of those, like, almost, almost like that homey theme park food nowadays where, like, it's comfort food for a theme park. But to keep it into HHN this year, we have two brand new food trucks that are themed, um, with our brand new, uh, two houses that we just revealed this last weekend. And these have some gory slash delicious snacks coming out of them. We got a chance to be one of the first to walk inside of these houses before our guests were able to. And, you know, from some of the stuff that we saw inside these houses, we just drew so much inspiration of just good food that could actually also feel like it's inside that house.
0: Oh, wow. So you truly walked the houses and then started conceiving of these items
6: yeah when it came down to the truck to the to to the houses um we we got the chance to go inside of them, and the same thing came with the tribute store. The tribute store was already open for a few weeks before we actually got the chance to come inside and walk it and you know we totally drew inspiration from what we already saw that our merchandise and our visual merchandise team had deemed these houses of and um you know we we just definitely wanted to pay a tribute. Um, no pun intended, but you know uh, to to everything that was that that was going on in there and all our past characters.
0: it's so cool that like you were as excited about these spaces as some guests, and then you in turn created these whole menus of foods that people enjoy. I'm just so uh, impressed and surprised by the time frame and the turnaround and how you're able to make so much cool stuff happen in such a short period of time.
6: That's kind of who we are here at Universal Orlando. We all really take ownership for what it is that we do. We really get excited with our own parks, you know, our guests and our, you know, our team members are guests. They they you know, they truly enjoy being out here. They truly enjoy Halloween Horror Nights. They truly enjoy seeing some of the food that we produce ourselves. That's kind of been my go-to when I create is to make sure that it comes from the heart. Make sure that I'm really excited about it. And in turn, you know, I, I believe our guests will be too.
0: Is there anything new for Christmas time or beyond that you're working on that you can discuss?
6: Christmas time is also that one time of the year where our guests and our team members uh, alike both get really excited. Um, what I could tell you is that we're always working on cool and unique items for food and beverage. And to be honest with you, with Christmas time, you know, you just really kinda come out here and see what we got.
0: What do we, what does that mean?
6: That means I'm just gonna leave it into your imagination for now <laughs> until you get here.
0: <laughs> so should I be dreaming of a of a Yuletide Pizza Prize or is that off the table? <laughs>
6: <laughs> no, well I mean you know, I'm writing it down as we speak, so you know, uh, you never know.
0: If there's just oregano all over it and it's like evergreen dust, I'm coming for you. I know where it came (laughs) from.
6: (laughs) I'll shout you out.
5: Hi, Carly. This is Cassie calling from Chicago. Um, I just listened to this week's episode and I wanted to say two things, one being that there is still a bagel restaurant um, in Chicago. It's in Boystown. It is a second location to the one that was in Skokie that did sadly close. Um, So if you are ever back in the city, you can still go to the bagel and have their delicious matzo ball soup. Uh, Second thing is if you haven't tried the cheese cup and with two packets of mustard mixed in, preferably the spicy mustard, uh, I would recommend it. The cheese cup alone is not my favorite at all. Adding the spicy mustard gives it the right consistency and a little extra flavor, and it tastes a little less like Play-Doh. So if you're looking for something that isn't just mustard or plain pretzel, I would recommend doing that. Sometimes I do take an extra straw to use it to mix the two together in the cup, which I don't like that I take an extra straw, but there it is.
0: Uh, Love the show. Thanks so much. I've gotten so many calls lately about plastic peel-top cheese. And while I disagree with many of them, because if it can't be used in a cheese fountain, it's not real nacho cheese, y'all. This one I actually find to be pretty interesting. I'm going to have to try this the next time I'm at a park just to see if this could push me over the edge into realizing that the plastic cup of cheese is not necessarily a lost cause. But truly... My money's on that mustard not doing anything
5: for that Play-Doh product. Hi, Carly. It's Ashley from Iowa. I have a question about what you would recommend to spice up the awful trash that is Joffrey's coffee, coffee that is found in every Disney hotel room. Thanks. Look forward to film Friday. Almost here. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: My answer for you, plain and simple, is don't. Don't even do it. Not because of Joffrey's hotel room coffee, which personally I've never had, but because of how awful other people are. There was a thread in my Facebook group about things that go down in hotel rooms and yada, yada, yada. Other people in flight attendants sometimes wash their underwear and tights in the coffee pot because it boils hot water and sanitizes them. I have no idea, but I don't touch that thing regardless of any hotel I'm in. And now I never, ever, ever will. Though, granted, I am someone who wipes down my own hotel room upon arrival, even in non-COVID times, so take it with a grain of salt, even though there are an uncomfortable amount of results when you Google clean underwear with hotel coffee maker. I'm talking a lot of results from every year going back in time. So, now that you're in dire need of coffee and can't even settle for what you got, what do you do? Well, here's a primer to the difficult life I tend to live when I'm on property. If I'm a Disneyland resort, I'll mobile order at Starbucks and grab it to go. Sometimes that does mean entering a park first to scan in and use MaxPass, then leaving to get coffee, and then returning, which is very annoying, but it works and it's often faster than actually going to the Starbucks inside either park. At Walt Disney World, it's a little trickier. If you're a hot coffee drinker, you can usually find something good in your hotel on the way to the park, But if you like iced coffee, specifically a nonfat latte like I do, the Dolphin Hotel has a really good grab-and-go coffee shop called Fuel that I rely on heavily. Otherwise, Joffrey's kiosks are your move, ironically. There's never too long of a line, they move quickly, and you can get caffeinated pretty easily on the go. Now, you know I love me some Starbucks, so I think some people are probably shocked that I'm saying to go there. But it's gotten so time-consuming to get it, That I've driven to Disney Springs, ordered it in person, then gone to Magic Kingdom, and I'm pretty sure it's saved me time. If this sounds like too much, yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) So here's what I recommend for you if you just want coffee and want to move on with your day. Pack powdered coffee! There are some really great instant options out there now. My friend Jonathan, who runs Joe Coffee Company, a local New York City chain that I frequented daily before we were friends, it's very cute, worked tirelessly to develop his line of specialty instant coffee, and it's fantastic. I always bring it with me whenever I'm there for work, and I've used it in a pinch when I can't get a full-on latte. It's also really easy to grab hot water wherever you are and then bing, bing, boom, you're out of there without worrying about anyone else's undergarments being dunked in your morning java. Hope that helps. And I'm really sorry if I gave you any nightmares.
5: Hi, Carly. My name is George. Um, I'm a a big fan of your work. Um, I want to say that I 100% side with you about living with the land Uh, when you were on podcast the ride. I think it's an excellent ride. Um. I have a question about Oga's Cantina, and I want to get your insight. So the last time I went, I had the Black Spire Brew, which was, like, so delicious. But I am not drinking caffeine as much as I was before. So I'm wondering, what is a good non-alcoholic beverage, or what is the best non-alcoholic beverage, I should say, at Oga's Cantina? Because I, uh, I can't drink uh, alcohol. It does not agree with me. Um, thanks. Bye.
0: Okay, so typically I do recommend the Black Spire Brew, which you mentioned, so instead I'd either go with the Blurg Fire, which is a pomegranate lemonade with some habanero lime in there, or if you want to feel like you're drinking something very special, get the Cliff Dweller. It's a ginger ale-based drink with citrus, coconut, and hibiscus grenadine but it's served in a souvenir glass, so it'll set you back 35 bucks. It's spendy for a non-alcoholic drink, but if I had to choose, that's what I'd go with. And the glass is cute, so you get a free souvenir with it. Even though, as my husband tells me, when you pay for it up front, it's not free. Hope you have fun on your next visit.
5: Hello, Carly. This is Brittany, and I would just like to say that latte, the crazy new Dog Robot at Universal is my personal Olumel. I hate it. Every time I see it, it makes me uncomfortable. And I just needed to call in to let you know how repulsed I am by its very existence. Love the podcast. Love you. Talk soon. Bye.
0: Now, I tried to keep these calls strictly about theme park food as much as possible. But this dog's name is Latte, so technically I think it counts. Toothsome Chocolate Emporium at Universal City Walk in Orlando debuted this robot dog named Latte. I didn't really know I felt a certain way about robotic dogs, but caller, I am right there with you. I find Latte to be extremely, extremely unsettling. So keep in mind that Toothsome, which is basically like a steampunk Willy Wonka, the food's great, by the way – Already has a terrifying character. It's this dude, Jacques, who I guess is like a robot with a bronze head and very stiff movements. He absolutely freaks me out. So now having a pet in the family of terror characters, it's just not, it's just not what I need after a very difficult long year. You know what I mean? I applaud the innovation. I mean, the color scheme and the detail of Latte is very well done. Even that coil tail that boings back and forth is very cute. But when he picks up those tiny, scary robot legs and reminds us of those type of YouTube videos that tell you that civilization will one day end and the robots will conquer us all, it's just so much scary and I don't love it. I don't love it. I don't love it. I applaud them for the innovation, but I do not love it.
5: Hi, Carly. I'm Lindsay. I really like your podcast so far. It's my favorite podcast now. Anyways, I was wondering if during normal non-COVID time if you would choose Be Our Guest Restaurant or Cinderella's Re- Royal Table for a dining reservation in Magic
0: Kingdom. Thank you. Ooh, this is a toughie. So to catch anyone up who's a Disneyland person, Cinderella's Royal Table is princess dining inside Cinderella Castle. You meet Cinderella before you eat and then you're given like some plastic toy. I think I got a wand and princesses wander from table to table. Be Our Guest, which is set in the Beast's Castle, has either breakfast, where food magically appears on your table after ordering, or regular waiter service lunch and dinner, when you can see the Beast walk throughout and can meet him at a special photo op. For a while, it was the hottest ticket in town, but both of them are still top tier and hard to get in. In current times, things are obviously Very different. Cinderella's Royal Table currently has no characters and therefore is a bit less expensive, while Be Our Guest is only doing its prefix lunch and dinner menu. No breakfast. So to me, in regular times, I'm going to pick Be Our Guest, no question. There's really nothing like meeting the Beast, meeting a character of that size and stature, and that French onion soup is delightful. But in current times… I'm going to go Cinderella's Royal Table. I know the allure for many, many people is the princesses, but I personally do not like meeting face characters. I am an adult who is often there alone or with my mom or with a friend, so it always feels a little like the popular girl in school is taking pity on me. So that's the only reason that I'm going to go for Cinderella's Royal Table for this limited-time-only princess-free dream. But can we talk about another debate that has not been brought up? Be Our Guest has three rooms. The Grand Ballroom, the West Wing, and the Castle Gallery. And some people's favorite room is not the Grand Ballroom, which I don't understand at all. The other two spaces are very clearly overflow spaces. I don't care if the actual rose is in the West Wing. Get out of here! You wait for the table in the Grand Ballroom with the windows, with the pretend snowfall, and that gorgeous ceiling. Do people out there really like the other rooms better? Let me know, I can't handle this. Case closed. that's our show thank you so much for listening thank you to david lancel robert martinez jr rick florell and robert gilbert for coming on the show and thank you to everyone who works at the parks who helps me fact check the teeniest tiniest details of this podcast you are all a joy and you make this whole thing possible You can find David's stories on food and wine, and as I've mentioned a lot already, I highly recommend them. My family and I take food very seriously, and even while reading his piece on America's 100 best bakeries, I discovered there was one two miles from my parents' house that none of us had ever heard of. Two miles! So trust me, no matter where you live, you'll be able to find one of his gems. And I cannot wait for my road trip through all of his stories. Check him out on Instagram at DavidLancel1. If you liked this week's episode, of next week's when we dive even deeper into theme park food. The mysteries, the surprises, the unexpected ingredients. It's a doozy and it's also going to be very fun. Some of my favorite folks and familiar names are joining me and it's kind of going to be a little bit of a podcast party just without the shared platter of snacks. So don't miss out and start looking forward to next Wednesday right now. Tweet at me Hit me up on Instagram, too! (laughs) Let me know what seasonal food you're enjoying, what you're hoping for this holiday season, and where you can't wait to eat next. I'm at Carly Weisel on both of them, and I love hearing your thoughts on each weekly episode thread. I really do. I love hearing your thoughts, and they get lost in a DM, so tell me publicly. Shout your allegiances out loud. And... As always, a gentle nudge to, if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts and aren't driving or riding a bike, to please take a couple seconds to subscribe so that you get every episode the second it's out. If you want to rate me like a great Lyft driver and leave five stars, that's cool too or leave a review for Very Amusing, which will be up there forever. I saw one this past week that was like, even though Hollywood Studios deserves a higher ranking five stars, and that's exactly what I'm looking for. It's like a permanent little bulletin board for you to voice your love of Olu or praise plastic cheese, and there is nothing I can do about it. It is a safe zone. It is untouched, and your thoughts will live on for all of time. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, send it to a friend. Send it to a boring coworker who could use a few giggles in their life. Send it to your favorite robot dog. Anything goes. Very Amusing is edited phenomenally by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon.
5: Hey, honey, it's mom. I have to tell you, this week was so great. I loved it. Um, I have so many memories about the Coke detonator. But I just wanted to say you researched so much. I'm so proud of you. I think maybe you were in the wrong profession. I think you should have been a private eye. You get down and dirty. You get it all, and I love that. Um, I wanted to tell you, do you remember um, when I wanted to take home my Coke that I got in, in Star Wars land? And we, at that time they said we couldn't take it because the airlines would think it looked like a bomb. So what I did is I took the top and put it in my purse. And I wrapped the other part and sent it in my suitcase. So I do have an empty one because I know I didn't want to have it with liquid. So I thought that was such a cute story. That was so great. Anyway, um, loved it and can't wait till next week. And I love you and I'll see you soon. Bye, honey.